And I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. I think you will profit most if you have it open in front of you because I'll be referring to the various phrases, truths there. Psalm 51. I'm going to read the whole psalm. It stands as a unit, but we'll be focusing, of course, on the second half. Let's hear God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And that ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. One way of thinking about salvation is to divide it, you might say, into two cardinal blessings. And we see both of those in this psalm. And this psalm is a masterpiece of, of those two covenant blessings of salvation. One is we need to be reconciled to the living God. This requires that we obtain forgiveness for, from Him and, being, and that blessing of being at peace with Him again. Paul will speak about that in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The opening nine verses of Psalm 51 are precisely that. By way of review... You'll, re you'll recall David in those verses 
is uh, he describes his sin. He holds nothing back. He uses various words. He calls what he has done transgressions, iniquity, sin, and evil. And he then, though, knows that his only recourse is to go back to the God that he has offended. And he remembers and reflects on how God has revealed himself, the name of God, back in Exodus 34. And he uses that language concerning the revelation of God's nature. He speaks of God's grace and mercy. That's how the psalm opened. The ESV says, have mercy. Uh, it is actually also could easily be translated, grant me grace, give me grace. This, the concept of unmerited favor. Uh, then, of course, he refers to committed covenant love. It's translated here, steadfast love. That's how God reveals himself. I am this kind of God. The Lord says, and not just mercy, but abundant mercy. And so he reflects on that, and then he gives us three images of what he needed to have done. He, there was an image that came out of, you might say, uh, accounting or uh, writing, where the English translation is blot out. It would be the idea of erasing off of a papyrus or the, the writing document of that day, a scroll, scraping it, writing it off. Get rid of these, this record, O oh Lord. It must be gotten rid of. Blotted out. The other one came, another one came from the idea of, of laundry. Wash me. He, he looked at his life as that of filthy rags of a garment that is soiled and dirtied and, and, and near unredeemable. The Lord must wash it. And then the other one comes from the, uh, the priestly um, services and such. Cleanse me. Oh God, cleanse me, purify me from that which excludes me from worship of you. Uh, he, made, he made this prayer, of course, because Nathan had come. Nathan the prophet had come, and God used Nathan to convict, convict David of his sin. But it is an interesting statement. In 2 Samuel 12, David confesses that he has sinned and Nathan has communicated to him verbally the truth. In that verse, 2 Samuel 12, 13, Nathan said, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And so David knew that that, uh, that was true and afterwards writes this psalm that we have read. Um, and as we reflected on, he knew God's name and character, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so he has confessed in this psalm and he has spoken in assurance in verses uh, 7 and 8 and 9 about how he is confident that the Lord will forgive him and purge him. Uh, I mentioned last week that a very legitimate and maybe, I, and I think really the better way to translate verses 7 and 8 would come about in a future way, the idea of you will purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. You will wash me 
and I shall be whiter than snow. Um, but you'll note, as we now transition, we need to pick up this second equally important uh, dimension of salvation. I've used the, tra uh, the term transformation. What does a sinner need to relate to God? He needs to be reconciled to God through confession of sin and forgiveness, but we also desperately need transformation. And David picks that up beautifully, understands this clearly, and starting in verse 10, that's the emphasis of, of this psalm. And so we understand that God's grace um, not only forgives the sinner, but he works to transform the sinner from the inside out. You see, David wants to live again. I made the point when we were in Psalm 119 that the repeated prayer of that psalmist is make me live. And in true biblical religion, that starts from the inside out. Other religions and self-help books and that kind of stuff basically think they can impress upon you from the exterior, maybe by structure, by habits, by whatever. I can change your life. I can conform you into a certain mode of, of behavior. But what is lacking is the internal transformation of the heart. Biblical religion starts by a divine work on, we would call it my insides, your insides, the heart, the mind, and works its way out. And that's precisely the, uh, the direction that David takes. So in verses 10 through 12, we have inner transformation, inner individual transformation. And note David starts by saying, by the way, and you can see it, the language of sin kind of falls away. You're only going to get one reference to, direct reference to sin in, um, in the remaining verses, and it's actually where David says, I will teach sinners. In other words, these other people. He has confessed his sin, and God is graciously forgiven, but there's more, and so he launches into this section on transformation. And note at the very first word of verse 10, he needs nothing less, and you and I need nothing less than a miracle in our lives. Create in me a clean heart, O God. That word create is precisely the Hebrew word that is always linked to God's action. It is in the very first verse of your Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it mentions it later about God creating the livestock, other living things. And then in Genesis chapter 1, when he speaks about making man and woman in his image, he, it is used there. And of course, it's used in other places in the scripture. But the creation of a new heart. That is this comprehensive need that David had. He was, now, he was, he was saved at this point, but his, his insides, you might say, from all of this are, are destroyed. They're, they're a mass. They're, they're weakened. They, there's no life there. There's no sense of, 
of, of renewal. And that's what, that's what he's speaking about here. He needs nothing less than direct intervention of God. He needs, in other words, this is very similar to what Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 5.17. There's that great text. Many of you have probably memorized it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. A new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That is what every Christian ultimately is a miracle of the working of God. There's another verb that he uses in verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is a Hebrew word that uh, this is a fine translation, renew. In, in other contexts, you get translations like repair, restore rebuild things like the altar needed to be rebuilt the kingdom needed to be restored and you know enough uh, probably about English language that re at the start means it's got to happen again it was built at one time it needs to be rebuilt and so David was alive fully living a good and godly life for a season he has sinned that away, and now it must be renewed and restored. Listen to uh, the use, use of the same concept in Psalm 103, verses 2 through 5. That's the psalm that says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then it list, begins to list the things the Lord does. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit... Now, who, who crowns you, listen carefully, with steadfast love and mercy. There's his nature again, his attribute of covenant, loyal love and mercy. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that what is the result? So that your youth is renewed. There it is. The working of God in an individual's life. Your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now back in Psalm 51, it's not youth that's talked about there, but this new and steadfast spirit. In other words, a spirit that'll be firm and constant and fixed and established. A spirit that'll be like, uh, like a home built on the rock. We think about how the Lord Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount. Who is the, who, who is the person that stands, that, that can't be moved? It's the person that abides in Jesus and in his teachings. He's like the man who built his house on a rock. And the storms do come and the floods come and the winds come, but he remains standing. And that's the kind of spirit that David is praying for, a heart and spirit. David understands He's referring to, to what in the scriptures are called, you might say, the springs of life. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. David has severely, seriously damaged himself 
and must be renewed and transformed, you see, and it starts from the inside. And he understands, you see, that it is, he cannot do it by his own power. That's, that's why he's praying. You pray for things that you can't do. And he understands and begs God who, what? Who can create. He begs the God who spoke and brought worlds into existence, who created the world by the word of his power. And he is praying to this God. Now do that work, please, oh God. I cannot do it. Would you do it in my life? Well, that, boy, that's just verse 10. Okay, uh, that's the need was verse 10. Verse 11 is the process, and this too is extremely important. The process will be the fullness and return of the Holy Spirit who gives that experiential sense, that felt sense of the immediate presence of God. That's verse 11. He says, uh, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This idea of God not taking that kind of statement that's been really misunderstood. I think the easiest thing to, to, way to understand, and not just the easiest, but the right way to understand it, is David is acknowledging that he is unable, and by the way, you and I are unable to live a holy life without God. I wrote an article for the newsletter, and I made this statement in there. The Christian life is not hard. It's impossible apart from the Spirit of God in your life. And so David understands that. He cannot live a holy life without God. He needs the help and power of the Holy Spirit every single moment. That's why we have a hymn, I need thee every hour. Uh, if he is able to overcome temptation and follow godliness. So verse 10 is his great need. I need I need rebuilt heart and soul. The process will be, Lord, you being present in my life. Come fresh into my life by the presence of your Holy Spirit. What's going to be the result? The result is verse 12. It's a twofold result. One of the wonderful things here, David used to know joy and now he wants it back. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke regularly about joy. He says, Salvation and the growing knowledge of the vast implications of the gospel when applied by the Spirit will enable the Christian to rejoice forevermore. And that's what David is praying for here. And then, of course, as the Spirit has come and gives joy. This is such a wonderfully balanced verse, verse 12. Because it tells us, how we continue to, to walk more faithfully with the Lord. If the Spirit comes and gives joy, and if He will give me, this, this translation says, and uphold me with a willing spirit. This spirit is my, my, my responding to um, to to what I'm supposed to do. 
there are things that we are supposed to, we're supposed to imitate God. We're supposed to walk in his ways. Uh, the result, one person, Matthew Henry, says, the result here is true Christian living. Joyful, willing obedience to the living God. And Henry says, the more cheerful we are in our duty, the more constant we shall be to it. And don't you see how obviously that goes together? If we are delighted in God and in His ways, we want to do what, what, he, uh, what, he has, what he desires us to do, what He commands us to do. That's why the psalmist will say things like, uh, how wonderful is your law? Uh, how I love your law. Well, if you delight in that, then we find ourselves doing it. So, so David has made this, the, this composes, these three verses are that fundamental, internal, individual rebuilding of his life. But I must, must press forward. Uh, but I will say this, that is a prayer. You don't have to have committed adultery and murder and all those things to pray that. Those three verses are a magnificent prayer for every day of your life because it is exactly what you need and exactly what I need. Lord, come and renew me. All right, so it starts there, but I said it works its way out. And one of the wonderful things is, is verses 13 and 14, David is ready to get back involved in evangelism and ministry. He says, then, after the experience of 10 through 12, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Um, so note that it is a, one of the interesting things is David prayed to be restored, to be turned. In verse 12, the term restore is really also the idea of to return to me, the joy of your salvation. He is a, he is a returned, a repentant sinner. And who better to go to sinners and seek to turn them than someone who has experienced this? And so his salvation leads him to evangelism and ministry. Verses, more on that later. There are three exterior fruits that are born here. That's the first one. The second one, note that a truly restored sinner has his mouth opened. Verses 15 through 17, the issue of worship. Evangelism and or ministry, one. The second, worship. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You'll not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. In other words, he, he doesn't want there to be God, God ordained sacrifice and David gives sacrifice, but the, but the Lord is looking for sacrifices from a person who delights in the Lord, who worships the Lord. And so fundamental 
Open my lips, I will declare your praise. You'll not delight in these things, but I bring to you the sacrifices that you most desire. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And I can't, I can't avoid just saying, I just see a lot of what I'm saying flowing right into what Pastor Will preached about. What were the opening four verses? of Matthew 18 what was the illustration the illustration of a child and he ended that with the lesson of what who's the greatest in the kingdom it's the person that humbles themselves right well what is the difference I don't see much difference between someone who humbles themselves and someone of broken spirit and a contrite heart and so here is David now the worshiper. God has renewed him. He's involved in ministry now. He's promising that. He says, I will worship you. And finally, it doesn't, it goes past just him individually, but it goes into the whole corporate renewal as well. And that's the last verses 18 and 19. Um, one person has made a statement, and I, I want to do this. I think verses 15 through 17 revolved around David's individual worship. His love for Jerusalem, the temple, the people of God are what form the structure of 18 and 19. This prayer, do good to Zion, build up the walls of Jerusalem, this corporate nature. There is a direct link there. Only when verses 16 and 17 are true for you, the individual, and for me, can verses 18 and 19 be true then for the whole corporate, dare I say, the whole corporate church? Only when I have been renewed in personal worship of the Lord and then join myself with others who have experienced the same transformation can the church be renewed. And he's praying for that. This mention of these offerings now speak of totality, of entirety. He's speaking about entire consecration to God. One person, as we draw things to a conclusion, has said this. Imagine a church. Imagine a local church. Imagine the Presbyterian Church of Coventry where everyone sincerely prays Psalm 51 where we are aware, yes, we're sinners, but we're aware of who our God is and the greatness and the glory of forgiveness that reconciles us to Him, that we pray and experience transformation that brings us into ministry and brings us then into individual worship and then together what kind of church would that be? It'd be a lot like the church that Pastor Will talked about uh, this morning. I want to say this psalm is has has four significant points, application points for different kinds of people. One is this: 
this Psalm 51 is for those who have never come to grips with the horror of human sin and also then the magnitude of divine grace. In other words, as I look out over this audience here, all of you, I think most of you know the Lord. But if there's someone here who doesn't, the issue is you haven't seen the magnitude of your sin and the much greater degree, ability of our God to forgive. And this is a call for you to come to faith in Christ. But second, a second very important application. This psalm is for those who think they are too high or too holy or too good to fall. David had had personal communications with God. He was in covenant with God. God had promised him a descendant forever upon his throne. But a day came and he fell dreadfully. And Paul will write and say, Ye who think you're uh, uh, too good for this, take heed lest you fall in 1 Corinthians. The third lesson that comes from this is for those who have fallen and fallen severely and think they cannot get back up again. It's for those who think it's possible to fall beyond the reach of God's grace and forgiveness that there's some kind of limit to what God will forgive. But no one is that far gone. Jerry Bridges, I think, sums it up. Every day of your life, you're never so good as to be beyond the need of God's grace. I've never, there's never been a day in my life when I've been so good that I did not need God's grace. And Bridges goes on to say, and you are never so bad as to be beyond the reach of God's grace. On your worst days, you are still within the reach of God's grace. And the fourth one, and this is very important because I think it's true for some of us, the psalm is for those that you think you've fallen, okay, and you may have actually gotten back up some, but you still think yourself useless from that point on, both to God and the church. How can God use me? I've done this. Well, I bet you haven't committed adultery and then murdered the husband. And David says, I'm going to be teaching sinners. I'm going to be ministering. I'm going to be in worship, and I'm going to be encouraging corporate worship. This psalm tells us whatever we've done, there is still not just forgiveness and reconciliation and not even just the individual renewal of our, of our person, but we can return again as we would be sensitive to the Lord's leading and what He's, the Holy Spirit's gifting us. We can return again to ministry. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for everyone in this room, those that hear 
my voice. May we return regularly, if not to the actual psalm itself and the reading of it, but to these concepts. This is, this is daily transactions with you. Daily we need to come. You've taught us to pray a daily prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And the very next request is, and forgive us our debts. So, Lord, teach us this working of the gospel in our lives so that we live day by day on your present spirit and gracious spirit and Holy Spirit uh, within us. May this be, may we hear joy. Right now, Lord, restore to us the joy of your salvation in our hearts. Open our lips that we will sing your praise all of our days. In Jesus' name I ask, amen.